Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. What is the role of Purdue Pharma in the opioid crisis? No uh, dollar figure is ever going to be enough to compensate for the wrongdoing, for the harm that really was all about greed and putting profits ahead of people. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll discuss a lawsuit against the company and the Sackler family. Also, the lobster industry is seeing increased regulations to protect the endangered North Atlantic right whale. This is a time for bold action, not conservative action. And we'll learn about the long wait list to get a lobster license in Maine. Plus, who's behind our bicycling infrastructure and the rules that govern it? You realize they were written by men sitting around a table deciding what worked for them as vehicular bicyclists, and then that would go to the states, and the states would build what those men sitting around a table decided was working for them. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. The Attorney General of Massachusetts, Maura Healey, has filed a lawsuit against Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, claiming that Purdue Pharma created the opioid epidemic and profited from it through a web of illegal deceit. Here's Attorney General Healy speaking about the lawsuit on WGBH's Boston Public Radio. My point is that you can't put a price on on a life, and uh, no uh, dollar figure is ever going to be enough to compensate for the wrongdoing, for the harm that really was all about greed and putting profits ahead of people. The complaint against the company and the Sackler family outlines a case that Purdue Pharma knew that their drug Oxycontin was the cause of overdose deaths, but that the company continued to profit. And that's not all. Purdue Pharma also explored going into the anti-addiction market. That's what ProPublica's David Armstrong recently reported. He joins us now. David, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Maybe you can start by telling us about the Sackler family. Who exactly are they? Well, it's a good question. It's, it's really an extended family. The company has its roots in the 1950s when three brothers, uh, all psychiatrists, bought the company that is now Purdue Pharma. And at the time, it was a really small, uh, sleepy pharmaceutical concern whose primary products were things like laxatives and antibacterial drugs and products. And it wasn't really until the advent of OxyContin in 1996 that Purdue Pharma became a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical concern. The family, you know, the Sackler family writ large is the extended family of the three brothers who who founded the company. They've all since passed away. So uh, what I think most folks recognize the name for is its adorning of buildings, things like museums and academic institutions and hospitals. They've been very philanthropic, and their charitable endeavors is what, until recently, they were best known for. 
Of course, now we're starting to see that uh, change, the public perception of the family change as well, because of actions like the one in Massachusetts. Yeah, we, we want to hear uh, now from Dominic Esposito. He's a Boston-based artist who created a giant steel spoon that was placed in front of the Purdue Pharma headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut uh, last year. He spoke with WBUR's Christy Laguerra. One of the titles that I sort of was playing around with was, you know, Sackler is a legacy of art and culture, and I put a strike through art and culture, and it was death and destruction. And here's photographer Nan Golden from that same reporting from Christy Laguerra. Having been addicted to OxyContin, I have a personal vendetta against the Sacklers because I know how hard they worked to get this drug out there, how hard they sold it like any good drug dealers. So, David, this is what's really changed in the story because I think for for years now we have known that Purdue Pharma and their production of OxyContin, their marketing of OxyContin is something that has led to the large number of heroin overdoses and deaths, the opioid epidemic in large part that we have in the Northeast and across the nation. But but the newer part of the story is just how closely Purdue and the Sacklers are being tied up in this. Why this turn? Why are the Sacklers being targeted by Maura Healy and also targeted by so many people for the company's actions? Purdue Pharma as a corporate entity has faced litigation for a number of years. And in 2007, Many of the states, including Massachusetts, as part of a global federal settlement, um, settled with Purdue related to uh, improper marketing charges. And that covered activity from, I think, 1996 to 2001. So now we're seeing a new round of litigation, literally hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits by cities, counties, states, uh, tribes, um, and other entities. And it covers new behavior, but Massachusetts has done something that's, that's unique and will probably be copied elsewhere, and that is they have directly tied the family's personal fortune, the, the profits they realized from OxyContin, to illegal activities at the company. And the reason for that is pretty simple. You know, the states are looking to recoup monies. They want to pay for the cost of this opioid crisis, the emergency services, the social welfare agencies that have been overburdened by this, and also directly compensate families who have lost family members to this crisis. And so to do that, you need to find the biggest possible pool of money. And that's what's happening. They, they are targeting the family's personal fortune. And that really is what's different about this suit from Attorney General in Massachusetts, Maura Healey. And that's what she's going after, the, the family's great fortunes, as well as the profits that the company's made. That's right. And, you know, in, in reality, you know, there's really no distinction. Purdue Pharma is 100%, or at least was until recently, a privately held company exclusively owned by entities that directly benefit Sackler Family Trust. So when Purdue makes a profit on OxyContin, that money goes directly to the family. And she you know, laid out in her complaint the amounts of money going to the family directly from Purdue. And these were usually semi-annual installments in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And in the time period she was looking at, which is 2007 to 2018, the family received $4 billion directly from Purdue. So we're talking huge amounts of money here on an incredibly profitable product.
Martha Biebinger from WBUR spoke with Dr. Andrew Kolodny from Brandeis University, and he spoke about the importance of the suit and in the way that it's been filed. Naming the people running the company, the, the family that owns the company, uh, for the wrongdoing of Purdue Pharma is critical if we want to see more responsible corporate behavior in the future. So, David, is this also a way to send a message to other pharmaceutical companies about the ways in which uh, states or other agencies can can go after their vast fortunes? Do, does it have the effect of changing corporate behavior? Well, I think potentially, yes, it does. We very rarely see this kind kind of personal accountability where the owners of a company and the Sacklers were also officers of the company. They, they constituted the majority of the board, and some of the family members also served in executive positions where you know, their wallets and pocketbooks are being directly targeted. It's interesting, too, because of the history here. You know, in 2007, Purdue Pharma is a corporate entity, and three executives, all non-Sackler family members, pled guilty uh, to federal charges of improperly marketing and selling OxyContin. Now, what was the practical effect of that? Well, no Sackler family members were named. The $600 million fine was paid by the corporate entity. And the three executives who pled guilty, none of them did jail time. And we learned from the Massachusetts complaint, were paid millions of dollars after that guilty plea by Purdue Pharma in an alleged effort to by their loyalty and, and to protect the Sacklers. So this could be a change where if the family has to disgorge its personal profits, you would imagine that would get the attention of other executives and owners of companies. The other thing that's being disgorged, I suppose, in this entire process is a series of documents having to do with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma executives and what they knew about how OxyContin was affecting people and what other lines of business they might want to get in, including exploring the, quote, attractive anti-addiction market. What can you tell us about this? Well, that's right. I mean, we learned a couple of new things from these documents. One is the degree to which members of the family were intimately involved in planning strategy and, and approving various marketing ploys and strategies that the company undertook. So, you know, uh, one of the Sackler family members, for instance, who was on the board, Richard Sackler, you know, was involved in very uh, small details about the way the drug was going to be marketed and was emailing and calling executives at the company day, night, holidays, weekends, to the, to the point where the the executives, you know, appealed to the CEO to have him back off. It was becoming disruptive. So, you know, that's an important thing. They, they, they were involved in every detail. One of the more startling things, I think, that came out of this was the fact that Purdue has actively explored getting into the addiction treatment business. And the way they talk about that business is much different than they talk about the business of selling OxyContin. And primarily, the difference is their view of people who are suffering from addiction. You know, when they were marketing OxyContin, Richard Sackler sent an email saying, we need to go after, and hammer was the word he used, the abusers in every way possible. He called them the culprits, and he called them reckless criminals. When they wanted to get into the addiction treatment business, it was a much softer tone taken. This is a vulnerable population. This could happen to anybody. You know, a middle-aged woman with back pain to a teenager with a sports injury. And I think the point of that was saying Purdue knew the risk of addiction and who could be harmed by it, but downplayed it, minimized it when they were selling the drug 
when they wanted to treat people who suffer from addiction, including those from uh, OxyContin addiction, it was a much different tale. David Armstrong, a senior reporter at ProPublica. You can find a link to his reporting on this issue at nextnewengland.org. David, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. The staggering number of opioid overdose deaths is prompting some people to take action, even though they could be arrested for doing what they're doing. In cities around the nation, a group called the Church of Safe Injection is handing out clean drug-using supplies. Group members say they have to step up because the public health system has failed. A chapter of the church is now being organized in western Massachusetts, and WBUR's Deborah Becker recently tagged along with volunteers in Maine, where the group began its work a few months ago. On a bitter, cold, recent afternoon at a park in front of the central bus stop in Bangor, about a half dozen people surround a folding table covered with handmade signs. The signs are offering free, clean syringes and naloxone, also known as Narcan, the drug that reverses an opioid overdose. We have naloxone, the overdose drug. We have clean syringes. We have some safe use supplies, which would be cookers, straps, uh, cottons. This man goes by Dave Carvaggio, even though that's not his real name. He doesn't want to be identified because it's illegal in Maine to have more than 10 hypodermic syringes unless you're a certified needle exchange. Police cars sometimes circle the park when they're there, but no one's been arrested yet. Oh, there's a police car right there. Police ever stop and talk to you or anything like that? Uh, There's one officer who's come and talked to us a couple times. But this time, the police car keeps driving. Carvaggio is a member of the group called the Church of Safe Injection. He says its mission is to help prevent diseases and overdose deaths. I believe that there's a, not just like a moral duty to violate unjust laws, but in this circumstance, a spiritual duty. Bangor Police Sergeant Wade Betters knows about the group and says he wants to meet with them. He believes their focus should be on getting people into treatment. You know, if you're committing a crime in the state of Maine, yeah, you, you could be subject to arrest or ticketed for that offense. Um, but in these particular cases, we generally use a lot of discretion because, again, the goal is the same, to save lives. At the next stop in Lewiston, police have warned volunteers there not to hand out syringes in a local park, reminding them that it is illegal. But that hasn't really stopped them. There's one, two, three aliens. Candace Child is in a car packed full of boxes of syringes and other drug-using equipment. Because of the police warning and because it's so cold, Child arranged meeting spots to give people their supplies. We stop at a street corner where two young men wait as she rummages through the boxes. Um, I'm going to give you 100. Okay. What about alcohol wipes? you need any of those? Oh, uh, yeah, actually. Child says she does this because she has a family member who's struggling. She also says there are only six certified needle exchange programs in Maine, none in Lewiston. Thank you. You're welcome. God bless you. Child says she's willing to risk arrest because she believes she's doing what government health officials should be. And why wait? Should we all sit around and talk and point fingers or should we all get off our ass and go do something about it? This helps, it works, it saves lives, it reduces HIV, it reduces hepatitis. We head to a third floor apartment where three people are waiting to trade containers filled with used syringes for clean ones. Hey, she's got 60. Good morning. 
A 36-year-old man who didn't want his name public because he's using drugs is uneasy. He says he's glad to get the clean equipment, but he admits that he's conflicted about whether getting these supplies makes it easier for him to use drugs. Uh, the only reason I struggle is, is the, the inner conflict, you know. It's like um, there's a preventative maintenance, yet at the same time it's enabling, you know. Even the founder of the Church of Safe Injection, 26-year-old Jesse Harvey, admits that he's struggled with that same question. But working in addiction recovery, Harvey says he's become frustrated by the deaths and the barriers to treatment. So Harvey plans to register the church as a nonprofit and then argue for a religious exemption from drug laws. He says the U.S. Supreme Court has already ruled that a religious group is allowed to use an illegal psychedelic in its rituals. But Harvey's quick to say that he's not advocating legalizing drugs. We're not saying that it's our sincerely held religious belief that we have a right to use this heroin. No, not at all. We're saying that it's our sincerely held religious belief that people who use drugs don't deserve to die when there are decades of solutions and the state's not going to do it. Well, guess what? We're going to do it. Harvey says his church has 18 branches in eight states, including one in Massachusetts. He says he'll eventually have a location that will include a site where people could inject drugs under supervision. For now, though, his congregants will continue risking arrest to hand out supplies. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, a whole economy built on the hearty snowmobilers of northern New England. But first, why some lobstermen have to wait more than 10 years to get a license. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. We're going to focus on news this week about the lobstering industry, about those who can get into the business, and what that business will look like. First, a consortium of Atlantic State's fisheries managers is calling for a change to the gear that lobstermen use. It's in an effort to reduce risks posed to the endangered North Atlantic right whale, and to ward off any potential federal action that could be even more challenging for the industry. Maine Public's Fred Bever has our story. There are roughly 410 North Atlantic right whales left in the world, and they are at risk of potentially fatal entanglements with vertical rope lines that lobstermen and other marine harvesters use to position and haul their traps. At a meeting of the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission in Virginia, its lobster board voted unanimously to set in motion the process that could lead to major changes in the East Coast's lobster industry. I frankly, with... with due respect to my friends at NOAA, don't want NOAA making decisions on what this lobster fishery should look like in the future. Patrick Kelleher is commissioner of the Department of Marine Resources for Maine, home to the country's dominant lobster fishery, which landed some 110 million pounds of lobster in 2017, worth more than $450 million at the dock. Kelleher says that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is developing a biological opinion that could include a formal jeopardy finding for the right whales. And under the Federal Endangered Species Act, that could lead to severe restrictions on the state's harvest. And our role as a board should be how can we as a board and as a management body and as individual jurisdictions 
reduce risk to the right whales. And David Borden, a Rhode Island industry representative to the board, emphasized the importance of trying to forestall federal action. If we want to control our own future on this, uh, I would point out we have to get ahead of the issue instead of responding to the issue. Uh, and, And that carries a lot of uncertainty. The board approved a slate of potential actions aimed at reducing vertical rope in the water by 20 to 40 percent in most areas. Those could include limits on the number of traps lobstermen are allowed to place in the water, changes in gear configuration, and even seasonal closures. Conservationists commended the board for being proactive, but also called for more. This is a time for bold action, not conservative action. Jane Davenport of Defenders of Wildlife called for a range of rope reductions of up to 50 percent. She says that whatever the federal government finds, the best available science already shows that female right whales stand a 95 percent chance of harmful entanglements during their fertile years. Entanglements are already causing jeopardy to the North Atlantic right whale in terms of both lethal and the sublethal effects of affecting reproduction. But Patrice McCarran, executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, told the board her members are skeptical that they are as responsible for the whale's fate as conservationists say. Still, she added, We do acknowledge that we we play a role and our fishery needs to change. Um, This biological opinion is scary And when I think about the courts deciding things or the service deciding things, I know that they don't understand the fishery and they don't adequately understand how these actions might affect our livelihoods. McCarran says the state's level board is the right forum for action. The board's proposal now will be fleshed out by staff, put out for public comment, and if the board gives a final nod, sent to the feds for adoption. Several environmental groups, meanwhile, are suing the federal government to take swift action to protect the right whales, and a federal regulatory board could initiate action on its own this spring. But DMR Commissioner Kelleher says it will be at least 2020 before any of the regulatory actions, state or federal, become effective at sea. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Despite the challenges the lobster industry faces, it's been going through an historic boom. And to catch that boom, you need a license to fish for lobster. Those licenses, though, are becoming increasingly hard to come by. More than 50 people have been on a wait list for a license for more than 10 years, some for a lot longer. New legislation in Maine would change this, but it's facing mixed feedback. Penelope Overton has been covering this issue for the Portland Press-Herald. Welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Why exactly does it take so long to get a lobster license in Maine? Well, there are two ways to become a licensed lobsterman in Maine. You can go the student route, which is something that's been reserved for children. I think initially it was set up as an islander kind of thing, that uh, if you wanted to have full year-round populations to remain on the island, the best way to do that is to have a direct route into the fishery. And then there's the apprentice way, which is the long way. Um, If you are over 18 or 23, depending on if you're going to college, you have to go on the wait list. And the whole idea was back in the 90s, late 90s, the state and lobster fishermen along the ports that manage their individual zones decided we need to make sure that we're controlling the people who go into the fishery. Part of that was because at the time they thought that the fishery might be on the verge of collapse. That turned out to not be true. In fact, the fishery up here in Maine, the lobster fishery, is is really booming. Um, but at the time, they were concerned about overfishing, 
And they were also concerned about gear conflict. You've got all these lobstermen fighting for the same hotspots where all the kind of the good fishing holes are. Um, and in Maine, that sometimes means people might start tying up each other's traps or cutting each other's traps even more than that. So you have the social side of it as well. They wanted to be able to restrict the number of people who would be fighting for the same prime fishing spots. And then there's a little bit about money, too. Lobster boom here now, everybody's able to make a really good living. But at the time in the late 90s when they first set this process up in most of the zones, it wasn't like that. People weren't earning the kind of money that they're earning now. And so they wanted to restrict the number of people fishing to make sure that everybody who was doing it could earn a living doing it. Maybe you could just describe exactly what, what this bill is and, and who's proposed this, this bill exactly. The co-chairman of our Marine Resources Committee up at the state legislature has introduced this bill that would allow anyone who has completed their apprenticeship and joined one of our seven different wait lists that are regionally based, they would be able to automatically get a license if they had been waiting on that list for 10 years or more. That's about 55 people that would fall into that category. They would not necessarily all join the fishery right away. Some wouldn't have the resources to to immediately buy the boat, buy the traps, and all the rest of the gear that you need. Uh, No one would be able to have more than 400 traps in the first year, and then you would have um, some that would even have less because they just wouldn't have the money to buy them. Who is opposing this bill? We we read that the Maine Lobstermen's Association is opposing it in part because of what you said earlier. We've already got a lot of gear in the water. There's already a lot of people competing in this fishery, and there's the added confusion of what's happening to this fishery because of the endangered North Atlantic right whale. So there's there's a lot in there, Penelope. Why, why are lobstermen opposing this, this piece of legislation? Um, every different lobsterman you talk to is going to have a different take on that. <laughs> but I will say, however, that the things that I hear when I'm visiting ports and talking with them about this is that the biggest concern that they cite is the overfishing concern. It's about protecting the stock that, you know, not only puts food on their table, but is also they want it to be there to put you know food on their children and grandchildren's table too. And there's also just the overcrowding. There's only so many lobsters out there that will walk in a trap and stay. <laughs> they want them to be in their traps, not someone else. And right now, everything is is great financially for lobstermen. They are catching more lobster than they have in years. It's it's the biggest lobster boom they've had. And so right now, everybody wants to be a lobsterman, but they know this won't last forever. And they don't want to have so many people in the fishery that when the bust happens, or even just the normalization of catch, they don't want to have so many people out there fighting for a decreasing number of lobster. And you also have the concern that like, okay, we want the people who are outside of the fishery who have other options, other jobs that they can do, other ways to earn a living, especially down in southern Maine where you know a job is a little bit easier to find. There's a sense that lobstermen feel like they have other options, but whereas children that live on the islands or on some of the shoreline down east, they don't have as many options for a good-paying job. And a lobster job is a ticket to middle-class life in Maine. So that's not something that they want to necessarily take out of their children's hand and pass it on to somebody else. I will say that the Maine Lobstermen's Association is knee-deep in all these these right whale regulations, and they know that there is a lot of 
potential for big change to come to the industry and just start reducing the number of traps every fisherman can have, closing some zones altogether. So the last thing that the Maine lobsterman wants to do is to send a message to federal regulators who hold the power to decide how much to restrict the industry. Hey, by the way, we're about to add a whole bunch of new fishermen out there that might be putting out lines that can entangle right whales. They feel like that's not the time to be doing it. There's a certain push with the Maine Lobstermen's Association, with the Maine Lobstering Union and some other groups like that, that let's put this off for a while and see what the federal regulators are going to want us to do in order to protect right whales. Mm. Let's not give them a reason to come down hard with the hammer on us. Penelope Overton writes about the lobster industry in Maine for the Portland Press-Herald. She's the author of a recent piece, Dreaming of a Lobster License but Trapped on a Wait List. You can find a link to it at nextnewengland.org. Penelope, thanks as always for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me, John. As we report on these two intertwined species, lobsters and right whales, there's an acknowledgement that it isn't just fishing gear that's hurting the whales. It's also an inability to produce new young. There's been a lot of study to try and understand this problem, and we're going to take you now to one local resource for information, the New England Aquarium, which has the world's largest collection of right whale poop. Yes, poop. It sounds kind of gross, but fecal matter can tell you a lot about the whale's health. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has our story. While families and schoolchildren look at jellyfish and sea turtles in the aquarium, scientist Katie Graham studies poop behind the scenes. So our freezer is at negative 80 degrees Celsius, which is very, very cold. Uh, And we have five shelves jam-packed full of poop. (laughs) Graham works in the Marine Animal and Ocean Health Stress Lab. The lab stores hundreds of fecal samples in a big upright freezer. Right whale and manatee feces is on the top. We've got bowhead feces and baleen on the second shelf. We've got uh, fur seal poop on the third and fourth shelves, and uh, I think some shark mucus and other assorted goodies on the bottom shelf. She takes a clear plastic container from the freezer. It's partially coated in frost, but inside, a hunk of something red. A right whale's diet makes its poo the color of cayenne powder. Does it smell bad? Uh, It doesn't smell bad when it's frozen, but when it uh, starts to thaw, it gets very, very stinky. Why all this poop talk? The short answer is that it could help prevent right whales from going extinct. It's hard to study big marine animals in the wild, even harder to do it in a non-invasive way. 20 years ago, marine scientist Roz Rowland wanted to understand why right whales weren't having more calves. She had an idea. I knew from studies of primates and other terrestrial species that you could measure hormones in fecal samples of these other species, and I figured, why not whales? If you're wondering how she collects it, the answer is with a boat and a net because it floats. Rollins' team now has about 400 right whale samples. To test one, they defrost a few grams under a fume hood, then dehydrate it, sift it into a powder, and combine it with alcohol to make a tincture. I think what's particularly amazing is how much you can learn about these animals without ever putting a hand on them. It's just, you know, it's like you go to the doctor, you get a panel of blood tests. We're getting that type of information on animals that you can't capture or, you know, handle in any way. Feces can tell you a lot about reproductive and metabolic health, stress levels, biotoxins, infectious diseases. Rollin calls it a goldmine of scientific information. Recently, the team's focused on thyroid health. Data suggests right whales don't have enough food, which Rollins says could explain why they're showing up in odd places. 
places that bring them into contact with humans. You know, they're being entangled in fishing gear, they're being hit by ships, there's a lot of underwater noise. We're now going to, uh, talking about seismic exploration off the coast, there's going to be, you know, development of wind farms. All of this activity on our coastal ecosystem is affecting their habitats. If we know it's harming the whales, Rollins says we can design policies to protect them. The right whale program has yielded so much information that the aquarium is expanding it to other marine animals. Like their three fur seals, Luna, Chidak, and Katovi. Here's scientist Katie Graham again. She's leading the fur seal poop project. What we're trying to do is build... um, a library of hormones um, so we can learn about their reproduction. We're one of only three aquariums in the U.S. which have northern fur seals, and so everybody's actually contributing fecal samples from their animals uh, to help us build up our library, which is really cool. So you get poop in the mail? You get poop in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) A big shipment of poop. (laughs) The fur seal hormone study is still in its infancy, but Graham hopes the work will help threatened wild seals in the future. From the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. Coming up, we'll explore the history of bicycling infrastructure. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. Ever go on a hike in the woods and find an unmarked path veering off the trail? Some of these are so-called pirate trails carved by mountain bikers. They're just one part of a confusing infrastructure that's been built over time with a history of pitting insider advocates from different camps against landowners, forest managers, urban planners, and others who just want to jump on their bikes and go to work. That's what NHPR's Outside In podcast looked at in two recent episodes called Rake and Ride and Stay in Your Lane. They found something really interesting. Both mountain biking and road biking infrastructure was shaped by competitive cyclists. And this has important implications for who participates in the sports now and who will in the future. The host of Outside In, Sam Evans-Brown, is back with us to walk us through what he found. Sam, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, let's start with mountain biking. And in a recent episode of Outside In, you track the history of so-called pirate trails. Why don't you explain what pirate trails are? Well, pirate trails is, you know, is my term that I prefer, but I've heard them called rogue trails. Some people just call them non-sanctioned or illegal trails. They're trails that are built without the consent of the landowner who is hosting them. And so we see them basically everywhere. There's a little network of pirate trails in a plot of woods behind the hospital here in Concord that that I came to know as soon as I moved to town. Um, And they snake their way through the White Mountain National Forest. They're, uh, you know, (laughs) I I once went down to visit a friend who lived in central Massachusetts outside of Worcester uh, when he had just bought a mountain bike. And it took me, you know, not... 15 minutes to find a network of pirate mountain bike trails that were only about a 10-minute ride from his house. So they are trails that have been built without permission, and they are they are literally everywhere in New England. How did they come to be? I mean, who built these trails? Who cut them through the woods? 
Well, they were built by mountain bikers who, in the early days of mountain biking, so if we think of the, the 1980s when the first mountain bikes came out, there weren't really trails that had been purpose-built for, for mountain bikes. So people were taking, them, taking the, the bikes out onto forest roads, out onto Class 6 roads, out onto logging roads. Um, and they started to look for places to ride the bikes that would be a little more interesting than just you know, a straight stretch of, of skitter road. Uh, and so they started to build trails for themselves. Um, and because of the people who were building them, that was the character of the trails themselves. So I spoke, for instance, to, to Dave Harkless, who's a bike shop owner in Littleton, New Hampshire, who has been involved in the sport since the very beginning. And they're tight, they're twisty, they're extremely technical. You could have 24 inches between the trees. There's still some trails like that around here, and we call them skinnies, and it can be extremely frustrating. What is the role of competition in all of this? Because I can imagine that there's a difference in people's minds in this community between going out for a ride on a weekend and feeling as though there's there's some sort of a, a larger competitive culture of mountain biking in the woods. It, am, am I right in that? Well, yeah, and I think you've really hit it because they're, the early adopters of these sports were very competitive individuals, and they were the same people who were doing mountain bike racing. And I think they really came to trail building through that frame. They thought of, what trails do I like riding on? What trails will polish my skills as a racer? Um, you know, what trails should other racers be riding on? And they weren't thinking, you know, what trails would we need if we wanted to make this a more inclusive and accepting sport? What trails would we need if we wanted to maximize the number of people getting outside and, and getting on bicycles in the woods? And frankly, that's something that I think you see in, in road cycling as well. Yeah. So tell us about that. So the culture of road cycling is a little bit different. And you go into the, the history of how road biking infrastructure and culture developed. Tell us a bit about that. Right. So this is this is another episode that we did back in the spring, and we called it Stay in Your Lane. And it centers on this paradox that I have encountered throughout my adult life, where you hear again and again from city planners that the the people who come to town meetings and, and city council meetings and pound on the table and, and speak about cycling infrastructure are often cyclists who oppose bike lanes. And it was sort of trying to figure this one out because it, it seemed paradoxical. It seemed like it didn't make any sense. And when you go back, what you find is that in the early days of, of road cycling, there was a school of thought called vehicular cycling. And it was, it was advanced by a few key individuals. But in, in the United States, it was an individual named John Forrester who lived in California. And the idea was that the most effective, the safest way and the fastest way to ride a bicycle was just to to act exactly as if you were a car in traffic, to ride in the middle of the lane, to follow all rules of, of the road, just as if you were a car, and to assert your, your right to be there. It comes from these competitive cycling clubs, clubs that were producing racers to, to go and compete in, in amateur races around their regions. And they're, they're folks who, who were very keen on going very fast and weren't afraid of being out in traffic. They were, they were willing to put their bodies in harm's way. So John Forster believed that in the United States, what we have is a car-centric culture, and he refers to that as motordom. And he believes that cyclists who are demanding bike lanes have been sort of infected by this car-centric mentality and actually are advocating against their own best interests by asking for bike lanes. Motordom doesn't have to 
say anything anymore because the bicycle activists, environmentalists, and whomever you like, anti-motoring people, they want side paths because that's what the ignorant people want. And when I say ignorant, I mean it. The people who don't understand Sam, this is so interesting, and, and it's fascinating to me because I'm not part of any of these cultures. I, I ride a bike a couple times a, a year, and I don't have a, a strong feeling about this culture. But what I do know about being on a bicycle is that I'm not a car. I'm not surrounded by all this metal. I, I want to be protected from all of this danger that's around me. And listening to what he just says there, it scares the hell out of me. It makes me think, who, who could possibly think I'm going to act like a car and I'm dumb to want a, a safe bicycle lane? Well, uh, you know, who could think that is is a a tiny fraction of 1% of the population, (laughs) which are the number of people who are actually willing to put their bodies in harm's way. Uh, And and that, I think, is the disconnect, is where you have these competitive cyclists who have learned to operate relatively safely out in the lane, uh, in part because they're able to go quite fast. They're able to go, you know, know, approaching 20, 25 miles an hour on on an open stretch. Uh, And so cars are perhaps more willing to give them a bit of space. I I really was trying to understand John Forrester's perspective, but I think unfortunately what it really comes down to is the current system works for me and I prefer it to the idea of having to ride in a bike lane where I might have to ride a little bit slower in, in order to be safe. And, you know, what he did with that is that he he went out and began to advocate against any engineering standards that said that bicycle lanes were the preferred way to keep cyclists safe. And he did this through something called AASHTO, which is the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. And they, they write these guidelines that your city engineer will look to when he or she designs, uh, you know, any transportation infrastructure. And this, this is a story that was laid out to me by a researcher named Ann Lusk, who is with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So when you track the Ashto guidelines back for bicycle facilities and you realize they were written by men sitting around a table deciding what worked for them as vehicular bicyclists, and then that would go to the states and the states would build what those men sitting around a table decided was working for them, what we ended up with was decades of bicycle facilities that were essentially designed by John Forrester because he wrote the first Ashto guidelines. So we've learned about the pirate trails, and we've learned about the culture of of biking like a car or using bike lanes. Talk about what's excluded in these couple of cultures that that you've looked at. Well, what's excluded is inexperienced riders. What's excluded is people who aren't able to go fast, who aren't able to go over rocks and boulders and logs and over extremely technical trails, the, the type that you find in, on these, these pirate mountain bike trail networks. And what that means, you know, that means a couple things. It means that for years, mountain biking has struggled to find new adherence. It, the growth of the sport sort of leveled off after the 90s. And it's only been recently with the construction of new trail networks that include trails for beginners that the sport has begun to grow again. But then, you know, I, I actually think the, the implications are more extreme in road biking where there are folks who don't ride bikes, it, you know, for exercise. They're riding it for transportation. And the fact that there are inexperienced riders out on the road trying to just get to work and they don't have a safe place to take their bikes is, I think, a direct consequence of the fact that we have had competitive cyclists pushing for infrastructure that works for them for decades. 
Sam Evans-Brown is the host of Outside In. You can find links to the two episodes that we're talking about here, Rake and Ride and Stay in Your Lane, at nextnewengland.org. Sam, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on to talk about Bikes, Bikes, Bikes. Snowmobilers in Vermont are seeing negative impacts from climate change, according to a new study from the University of Vermont. That's because the number of days with more than an inch of snow has dropped from 130 in 1960 to just 75 today. About 45% of those responding to this UVM survey have noticed the shorter seasons, and that's meant less time out on the trails. And that's a big potential impact for the northern New England economy. Take Maine, for instance. Snowmobilers are a huge part of winter tourism in some of the most remote parts of the state. Maine Public's Jennifer Mitchell hit the trails, and she brings us this story. So this is yours. Johnny Wakefield is giving me my first snowmobile lesson. Important stuff, like know your brake from your throttle. Okay, so that's a brake. Nope. That's the throttle? That's your throttle. Wakefield works in sales at Aquasic Marine on the shores of Rangeley Lake, about a a two-and-a-half-hour drive northwest of Portland. In the summertime, the business outfits recreational boaters who come to fish and water ski on the lake. But in winter, it's one of a growing number of local businesses that rely on power sledders to see them through the less hospitable months. Snowmobiling has saved this area. With Saddleback Ski Resort closed for three years now, Wakefield says without snowmobiling and the kind of winter that sends beach worshippers fleeing south, you could put a closed sign on the little mountain town until late spring. I don't even want to think what would happen if we didn't have a good season up here until the mountain opens again. Mary Bry of Rangeley was also disappointed when Saddleback closed, but she says it was a pleasant surprise to discover that winter tourism could still thrive. Bry, who is vice president of the local volunteer snowmobile club, says her group redoubled efforts to assist businesses hurt by the loss of downhill skiing. After three years, she says the town's efforts to rebrand and market the region as a snowmobiling destination are starting to pay off. I've never seen it this busy as it is this year. All the restaurants, all the hotels, they're all packed every weekend. It's just, it's been phenomenal. It's shown that we can go on without the mountain. But Johnny Wakefield says while a number of volunteer snowmobile clubs throughout western Maine have successfully started doing their own PR, he thinks the state could be more helpful in marketing power sports in the other Maine. They're funneling a lot more money to, uh, it seems like, coastal and lobsters and things like that. They push a lot on the ski industry. Um, There's definitely a lot more money that could go to snowmobiling. Both Wakefield and Bry belong to the Rangeley Lakes Snowmobile Club, a volunteer group that manages the region's trail system. More than 280 similar clubs across Maine collectively maintain some 14,000 miles of snowy trails. On this day, we're taking what's considered a short 70-mile round-trip ride to have lunch at a remote lodge on the northern shore of Aziskahos Lake, just a short way from the New Hampshire border. When you're coming in the corners, lean a little bit with the sled. Like a bike? Yep. Wakefield and Bry lead our expedition down an alpine trail, snaking through the woods, over streams, around active logging operations, and then we cross the frozen lake itself. After some minor mishaps involving tight turns and deep snow, for me anyway, we arrive at Bowsbuck Mountain Camps, not far from the New Hampshire border. There are 16 sleds in the parking lot. 
Bob Myers, executive director of the Maine Snowmobile Association and safety specialist Al Sweat have come along for the ride, their first of the season. felt good to be back out there. felt nice. It's a beautiful day. I mean, got a little snow, good scenery, the trails are great. I'm surprised we haven't seen any animals. Yeah. You know, deer and moose. Do you have anything you want warmed up? Like, I bring your helmets in. Bring all your helmets. Yeah, bring your helmets. Built in 1912, Bowsbuck is a traditional sporting lodge known for its rustic hospitality, especially its home style meals. A sign on the front desk encourages guests to talk to each other. As one of Maine's more remote outposts, Bowsbuck is a bit of a paradox, with power sledders roaring down the trail to get to one of the slowest, quietest spots around. There's no Wi-Fi or cell service here, and it's off the grid. The lights, powered by generators, sometimes wink off unexpectedly. It's kind of like a traditional stop. Come on in, have a beer or something to eat if you're hungry, and then continue off and go for a little more riding in Maine. Jay Lawrence of Attleboro, Massachusetts, and his 19-year-old son Nick are on their annual father-son journey that lasts about a week. Nick says snowmobiling is something he's been doing since he was young. Just what we like to do in the winter. And what's the longest ride you've ever done? Probably like around 200, 250 miles in one day. During a 250-mile ride, are there places to stop on the way, like little pit stops? Yeah. Usually that we got to find those. That's how we can go that far so we can re- get more gas and stuff like that. So really having those pit stops is kind of crucial for long-distance snowmobiling as an industry. Yeah, definitely. The buffalo chicken wrap's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing so many clothes, I don't know if I can make it up these stairs. <laughs> Bozbuck's co-owner, Wendy Yates, says snowmobiling was a big factor in her family's decision to purchase the lodge in 2007. They needed it to be a four-season enterprise, but she says there aren't enough skiers or snowshoers to sustain the business. Just would not have the volume of people we would need in order to sustain a full staff year-round. So being able to be open year-round really helps to keep the same staff here around. You provide somebody full-time employment. Last year, more than 80,000 people registered sleds to ride in Maine. What's not known is how much they contributed to the economy. But this year, the Maine Snowmobile Association and the University of Maine are planning a study to find out. And MSA safety expert Al Sweat has a guess. I know it's billions. It's got to be billions. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jennifer Mitchell. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England as well. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from James Kerwood and Emily Corwin. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Publix Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.